0: You might be enamored by the incredible technological breakthroughs of the past 20 years, but there was a breakthrough that took place in history that makes the discovery of the microchip seem like small potatoes. If you can get to a Bible, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 49 as our study leader Dave Wurtson talks to us about an event in the life of Moses and his people that is even more determinative than Einstein's theory of relativity. Something happened in 1400 B.C. that had not happened before and has never happened again. What was it? Ask yourself, what's the most important event that took place? As I look back, uh, one of the, the most important events that took place was being able to watch on television as one of our astronauts stepped out of that space capsule and you saw the dust on the moon fly. What an incredible, significant event. And so as I look back over a lifetime, that certainly has to be one of the most mind-boggling, significant events that's ever taken place. Right up here in, in North Dallas, up at TI, and throughout the computer industry, in our lifetime, the union of microcircuitry and the silicone chip and getting all that together and suddenly friends of mine that were talking about computers that would have to fill up a whole gymnasium suddenly were able in our lifetime to carry around the equivalent just in our pocket. I remember when I was in college, they came out with with an adding machine, with an electronic adding machine, a calculator. And that was an incredibly big thing, and it was, it was a big thing. It was a big typewriter-like deal. And all of us stood in awe before this, this calculator that we could all use now, instead of using our slide rule, the invention of microcircuitry and silicone and all that goes with that, those microchips. That is an incredible change in our culture. What do you think is the most important thing that ever happened? Well, we'd all have our little input. I'm sure the kids wouldn't think of somebody walking on the moon or talking about microcircuitry. They would have some other things in mind about what's the greatest event of their life. The question that Moses asked the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as we close his first sermon. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is Moses' first sermon to the people. And if he brings this message at the end to verse 32 brings his message to a close, and he asks the question that I just raised. What's the most significant event that took place in your life? Look at verse 32. Ask now about the former days. In other words, he looks at his audience and says, I want you to do what Dave just asked you to do. Think back over your lifetime. Ask about all the former days. Not just your lifetime, but think back into the remotest past. Ask now about the former days, long before your time from the day that God created man on the earth. Now that was a significant event. I mean, that makes even moonwalking look insignificant. Moses says, I want you with a bunch of Israelites to think back to the day of creation. And this was a group of people that knew chapter 1 of Genesis very well. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what an incredible, wondrous event that was when God created the heaven and the earth. Moses says, I want you to think all the way back to those mighty days of creation, and then come up to your present. Ask from one end of the heaven to the other. He says, don't only think about creation, but ask from the remotest part of the heaven to the most small, minutiae, down in the microchip world of electronics. In other words, just from the large to the small, ask yourself, has anything this great ever happened before? Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever happened before? Now, how would you answer that question? What's the most important event that ever took place? Now, Moses is going to answer that question in the next verse. Look at it. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of before? And here it is so great. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? That is an incredible statement. Moses is saying that the greatest thing that the children of Israel ever experienced in their lifetime, even greater than creation, even greater than all the wonders that you can go back on as you go back to the Old Testament, the flood, you know, certainly that was a great earth-changing event, the universal flood. You think of God giving the confusion of the languages in Babel, That was certainly a significant event. And yet Moses tells the children of Israel the greatest event of their lifetime and the greatest event of history up until that point was when God came down on Mount Sinai and they heard the voice of God. Now I ask the question, Moses, why is that so great? Because we could have had God create the heaven and the earth. We could have had God do all those gigantic displays of creation power. And yet if He didn't say anything, we wouldn't know what His plans for us were. We wouldn't know whether He cared for us. We couldn't be sure whether we were like chickens in a barnyard. For example, you know, chickens in a barnyard have a farmer that comes out to them every day, feeds them corn, and gives them all kinds of things, to, you know, the right kind of of food, make sure that they have water, and he fattens them up, and he does that for several months, and the chickens grow strong, and you can imagine yourself being one of those chickens, and say, boy, we have a wondrous provider. What an incredible deliverer we have, and this farmer is so kind. He gives us food every single day. He gives us water, and what a great, great, great provider we have. Suddenly it comes time, you know, it's celebration time, maybe one of the holidays, the same farmer comes out, and now he's got an axe in his hand, and he stretches the chicken's neck out on a chopping block, and whop! The chicken's head and foot rolls off, the chicken runs around in confusion all over the place, drops over dead, and the farmer eats it. You see, how do we know? How do we know that all the provisions of nature that we see around us, the bountiful way that the earth Break, uh, breaks forth with productivity, the warm sunshine that we would pray for in a cold day. How do we know that all these provisions, the beauty of a sunset, how do we know that we're not just chickens being fattened for the slaughter? Without the voice of God, there's some pretty good indications that maybe it is just blind, brutal, destructive force that's behind the universe. But one of the great truths of the Word of God is that God has spoken. The children of Israel could go back. You know, when Moses spoke to this audience, he could say to the children of Israel, you can think back to when you were kids. The specific audience that he had in mind was the group that was under 20 at Mount Sinai. So now those that experience Sinai, 40 years have gone by, so that the oldest ones that experience that, that are still living, are about 60 years of age, and then you've got them all the way down to about 40. So you've got the, the, the adult, the major middle age portion of the children of Israel that Moses can say, remember when you were kids. Remember gathering with your parents at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember the lightning. Remember the fire. Remember the smoke. And then remember hearing the rumbling voice of God. And he says, that's the greatest event of your life. And all of the book of Deuteronomy is built on the reality that God has spoken. Now, as I, you know, play the devil's advocate with that, I say to Moses, you know, Moses, that is great for the children of Israel. In other words, you could look at an audience and and you could say, did God speak? Does God reveal himself? And they would all say, yes, God does reveal himself. God does speak. And I say, well, how do you know that God speaks? And they say, because we were at Mount Sinai. We heard him speak. We heard the Ten Commandments, the very voice of God from Mount Sinai. We heard it with our own ears. Now playing the devil's advocate, I say, Moses, that's great for them, but what about us? What about us? We haven't heard the voice of God rumbling from Mount Sinai. We haven't heard God's voice. Now, something very interesting happens in the history of Israel. The idea of God speaking from Mount Sinai becomes important not just for the wilderness generation, but in the history of Israel, right up until the present time for Orthodox Jews, it becomes important for every subsequent generation. Turn over one page to chapter 5, and here we have Moses introducing the Ten Commandments and in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Hear, O Israel, the decrees, the laws that I have declared in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our made a covenant with us at Horeb. Now get this in verse 3. It was not with our fathers, and you could say it was not just with our fathers, that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go near the mountain. I want you to hear these words. Moses says, God didn't just make this covenant with your fathers, but he made it with you who are alive before me today. Now, in Jewish theology, that became known as the presence of, of God for all generations. And the idea goes like this. The wilderness generation heard the Ten Commandments, they experienced the reality of experiencing it with their senses. Moses recorded that revelation in the Israelite Jewish scriptures, specifically in this case, the book of Deuteronomy that we're looking at today. And as the generations followed, The idea was the same voice that spoke to you at Sinai in an audible voice that your ears could hear is now speaking to you through the inspired sacred writings and you can experience the presence of God that happened at Mount Sinai. You can experience it today. And that's very important. Now, most of us are kind of, you know, playing the devil's advocate, like I mentioned. Most of us can say, well, Dave, I don't really like it that, you know, I don't like it that way. I would like to be able to go to a mountain. I don't want to have to rely upon the scripture. If only I could go to a mountain and hear the voice of God, then I would believe. And I want to ask you this question. How did the children of Israel do in listening to the voice of God and obeying it? they actually did experience the voice of God in an audible way. They actually saw the Shekinah glory of God. But I ask the question, how well did the adult generation, for example, that experienced Mount Sinai, how well did they obey? And the answer to that question, sadly, is not too great. In fact, the very first thing that the adult generation did, the parents of these kids, was to disobey. You see, one of the darknesses of our human life without Christ is that we're always saying, well, God hasn't been fair. If only God would do this, if only God would do that, if only God would reveal himself to me like I want him to reveal himself, then I would obey. There's something I want you to really consider very strongly. That's not the case. You see, we don't have to go to a mountain. We just have to reach across to a coffee table or just up to a bookshelf or just to our nightstand. And you can hear the voice of God anytime, any place. You can get up in the middle of the night and you can be disgruntled, you can be afraid. And you can be worried. And you don't have to get in your car and drive to a mountain. You don't have to get in your car and drive to a church. All you need to do is to reach up on your bookshelf and take down the sacred writings, and you can hear the voice of God. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and let's think of these classic verses on the inspiration of Scripture, maybe in a different light. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 is saying that we can experience Sinai every day of our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture... All the Old Testament scripture and all the New Testament scripture is God-breathed. It is God breathing out. It's his voice to us. And because it is God-breathed, it is useful for us for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 is making the incredible statement that we can hear the voice of God like the Sinai voice any time, any place. I want to ask the question, what's the greatest event in your life? What's the greatest event in your life? The greatest event in my life began when I heard the voice of God in the scripture and God's voice to me was not just beginning with the Ten Commandments, but the voice of God to me was a verse like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone who will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I heard the voice of God say, Dave, the God of Mount Sinai is in love with you. I say, how has he proven it to me? How has he expressed it? he said, well, he gave a gift. He gave the gift of his Son." And the reason he had to give the gift of his son is because according to John 3.16, I was perishing. If someone says that you shouldn't perish so that you will not perish, it implies that you're in a state of destruction. You're in a state of perishing. And God loved me so much, he saw me in this state of perishing and he gave the gift. And he says anyone who will open their hearts to respond to that gift of the son of God will not perish, but they will have what? The greatest gift of all. They'll have eternal life in intimacy with him. The greatest event in my life began when as a five-year-old I heard God's voice me, that message, and I heard the voice of God through this book. And I want you to ask the question. I don't care if you remember that you were five. I don't care if you remember if it was in the summertime, fall, winter, or spring. I don't care if you have it written down the flyleaf of your Bible, but I do care that every single one of you can remember that there has been a time in your life where you heard the voice of God expressing the good news to you, that he loves you, that Jesus died to deal with your sin problem, and that Jesus rose again to give you new life. I want every one of you to think, can you remember a time? Can you remember a time when you heard the voice of God speaking through that fundamental message of forgiveness in this inspired text? Can you remember a time when you heard God's voice like that? And then did you respond? Did you say, God, that's right. Now, I could just throw it open right now for testimony. I was only five when that happened. And I've shared, some of you, I've shared this with some in the past. I remember sitting in the side of this old amphitheater. And I remember realizing, as my dad told just exactly what I just told to you, I remember realizing that's for me. Even as a little five-year-old, I heard God's voice speaking in the still, small voice of the Spirit of God in my heart. I wasn't that emotional. I'm not talking about emotion. I didn't cry. In fact, I hardly even told anybody what had happened. But I believed. And I want to be very, very clear. I'm afraid that some of you can be hearing the teaching of the Word of God and you kind of like it. You kind of like this fellowship of believers. You like, you know, the, the fun that we can have playing together. And yet you can be sitting in our midst and you've never responded to the voice of God and right now as I'm talking that voice is talking to you and he's saying I love you I want you to admit that you need me that you need the forgiveness that I can give and I want you just to say thank you Lord Jesus I'll receive it you don't have to do some religious ritual you, I'm not saying that you need to get your life all ready for God, that you have to get real religious. I'm not talking about that at all. I want you to really understand this because I'm very, very concerned that some of you can be all around the truth, but you haven't responded to it. Open up and say, Jesus, I have heard your voice. I've been struggling with that voice, I can't get away from that voice. And I want to open my heart. And in a moment of time, if you say, Jesus, I've heard your voice, the good news that you died for me, that you rose again to give me life, deep in my soul, I believe. Listening to the voice of God begins by responding to the new covenant's first call or first voice, which is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then you'll have a wondrous forgiveness. You see, the children of Israel that that stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard the commands of God, they had a great deliverance to look back on. Look at the next verse back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says in verse 34, "Has Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another? By testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds. Moses is just piling one exclamation after another to talk about the great deliverance, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Now, this is what Moses is saying was a great thing for the children of Israel. You are a nation. Egypt is and the deliverance through the Red Sea gave birth to you as a nation. You became a people. Now that, you know, from this many years' distance, coming all the way from 1400 B.C., the existence of an Israelite nation doesn't mean that much to us. And so I have to try to get you to go back there and realize these people for 400 years had been slaves in the imperial power of their day. It would be like having a, a small group of indigenous people, some boat people from, say, from Vietnam, that get blown in a typhoon and they get thrown up in China. And they end up being infiltrated into the gigantic communist bloc of China. And that communist bloc tries to snuff out this little indigenous group of boat people, 70 to begin with. But over time, this little group of 70 boat people in China begin to explode. And they begin to become hundreds and then thousands and ultimately a couple million people. So much so that the Chinese say, man, we've got to get rid of these people. They're threatening us. So not two million people wouldn't threaten the billions of China. But you get what I'm talking about. And that imperial nation kind of kind of just throws them up because God comes in and God starts to do some mighty things. That's what happened in the ancient world with this little nation of Israel. God just shook the imperial power of 1400 BC. He took the Egyptian Pharaoh and he wrung his neck. And he said, I'm God. You think you're God. You think Horus and the Falcon God. They're the gods of heaven and earth, but I am. And this little slave people was born out of Egypt, and God took them through the Red Sea. It's the greatest miracle as far as the the deliverance of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, and now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They hear the voice of God, then God protects them for 40 years, and now he brings them to the edge of the promised land. And as Moses spoke to these two million people, the tears would roll down their cheeks. It was like playing Chopin to a Polish audience. And all that history would roll over them. And the people would just well up with incredible thanksgiving. We are a nation. And what I want you to feel is that power of God. What God is there? Did Marduk give birth? to a nation from a people that were slaves, the God of Babylon? Could the Babylonians go back and and tell the story in history of a God who crushed an imperial power and gave birth from a slave nation to make them a free people? The answer is no. The Babylonians knew that. Could Horus down in Egypt, could Horus say, I gave birth out of a people that everyone tried to kill, I came into history in real space and time, and I opened up a path in the sea, and I fed them in the wilderness. Could the Horus god of Egypt make that promise? Could Thoth make that kind of a promise? And that's Moses' cry throughout the ancient Near East. He says to all the other gods, what other god enters into real space, time, and history? and brings about salvation. You say, well, Dave, I don't believe it. I think the the Israelite God isn't any different than any of the other gods. Well, how many of you will agree, as I've shared with you many times in the past, how many will agree that Israel is a nation today? Anyone want to argue with me that Israel's a nation today? You see, the miracle goes on. I've been in that nation. I've talked to Israel, Israelite soldiers, Jewish soldiers and even today when you talk about what I'm talking about right now, the idea of God choosing a people not because of anything great that they did but because of his grace and his mercy and his love and God doing incredible things to keep them alive on planet earth and then giving them a land and making them a nation. You see, for a Jew, the national promises of God are really important. And what I want you to get a hold of today, the nation of Israel is an objective reality. You can get in a 747 and be there in just a matter of hours. And you can move among a people, and you ought to be able to say, this is incredible. This ancient old people, everyone's tried to wipe them out. And here there's still a nation. And I believe the fact that they are a nation shows that we're moving towards the end of time because God loves to write all of history and there's no reason for it from a rational standpoint. It's just merciful grace. But the Lord God of heaven has said from a national standpoint, that little people of Israel, that little land that's not much bigger than the state where I was born in New Jersey, that's the heartbeat of God as far as the history of planet Earth is concerned. And Moses was saying that 1,400 years before Christ came to the world, what nation can say they were given birth and became a nation because God miraculously and purpose and personally met their need? And you say to me, Dave, big deal, I'm not Jewish. And I realize, based upon what you've told me today, that I need to love the Jewish people, I need to care for them, and oh, how I need to fight against anti-Semiticism. But what does it mean for me? As I look at this audience today, a greater miracle took place in your life. A greater miracle took place in your life. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And God speaks to us about giving birth to a people. And it's an even greater miracle than took place in the Old Testament. In fact, not Ephesians 3, but Ephesians 2. Same page, just over one page. Ephesians 2 verse 11. I want you to look at Ephesians 2 verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and you were called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. In other words, you were called non-Jewish by those who were Jewish. Remember, now here's the state that we were in. Remember that at that time you were separate from the Messiah. You were separated from the Messiah. You were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. All those promises in the Old Testament really didn't directly apply to you. You were foreigners to the covenants and the promise, the kind of things that we're going to be studying in the book of Deuteronomy. You were a stranger. You probably didn't even know that God made a promise to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You probably didn't even know that, he would, that God would provide a deliverer from that Jewish line that would bring salvation to all mankind. You were a foreigner at all those things. Probably didn't even hear it. But now in Christ, in the Messiah Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. And you've been brought near through the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace. The death of the Messiah, you might say, his bloody sacrificial death on Calvary has given us peace. He has made the two one, Jews and Gentiles, now united together. He has destroyed the barrier, that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his fleshly body, the human body, and being born of a virgin in Bethlehem. By abolishing with that body the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, now the church, this one body which is now the church, to reconcile both of them, both Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father. And it's all by one spirit. You say, Dave, the miracle of the Old Testament was awesome. What about the miracle of you standing before me? You see, Jew and Gentile become one in Christ. We have Republicans in the audience. We have Democrats in the audience. If I were to get you moving along the lines of politics, you'd probably tear each other's hair out but you sit here and listening to the word of God and I hope that I've reached a deeper level because I hope you say we're one in the savior and we become family if I were to look at the group economically some of you are at this end of the spectrum economically some of you are at that end some of you have this view about what ought to be done about educate school education some of you have that view about what should be done about education But I want you to realize that an incredible miracle has taken place. You have become not one nation, but one people of God in Christ Jesus. Somebody said to me just last night, he said, you know, as I I get more involved in, in the family of believers, I start to realize more and more this whole thing should just blow apart. It should all just cave in, and they're right. But because of the miracle, just as powerful miracle as miracle when, as when God delivered the children of Israel through the Red Sea, when God entered into your heart, like I talked about earlier, and you became a child of God, a great miracle took place. You became not a nation on earth, but a heavenly people, a heavenly nation, citizens of heaven, And it's going to be true forever and ever and ever. And only the Spirit of God. Will you pray with me that the Spirit of God will help me and will help you to realize what an incredible miracle that is. It's not the physical thunder and smoke of Mount Sinai, but it's a greater miracle as far as eternity is concerned than even the miraculous power of God in giving birth to the nation of Israel. Now Moses is greatly concerned as we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, as he closes his message, he's very concerned that that the Israelites don't ever forget this. And so when he gets to verse 35, he starts to, to drive his message home. And this is his final statement in this first sermon that he's giving them. He says this, You were shown these things. Why? So that you might know that the Lord is God. Why did God do all these miracles? so that you might have an intimate relationship with God and know that He is God. Besides Him, there is no other. From heaven you heard His voice. You were made to hear His voice. Why? To child train you. The word discipline there means like a daddy who loves his children dearly, and He's disciplining them. On earth He showed you His great fire, and you heard His words from out of the fire. Because He loved your forefathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for an inheritance as it is today. Therefore, know me. Know the Lord God. Acknowledge him. Enjoy intimate relationship with him is the idea. Take it to heart this day that the Lord God is in heaven above and on earth below there is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and that your children after you and that you may live long in the land that your Lord God is giving you for all time. I want to repeat it again. The heartbeat of Moses' words, intimately know the Lord. Take it to heart this day. And that will result in obedience. What Moses does is he brings together an incredible claim. He's saying as we look at all the different religious viewpoints, as we look at all the different concepts of how you get right with whoever might be out there, Moses steps into the midst of all this confusion and he says, listen, there's only one God. There's not the force of Star Wars. There's not the mystical voice that you hear deep in your soul. These are, there's not different manifestations of the great, beyond, whatever it might be. Moses is saying this. There is one ultimate supernatural being. And he has revealed himself. His name is Yahweh. The one who is for you. The eternally existent one who is before is for you. He is the mighty God of creation. And there is no one else... He has no rivals that can deal with him equal to his person. He is above all things. And so there's not a multiplicity of ways to get to him because he has declared there's only one way. It's through the Messiah, through the Messiah Jesus Christ. And he's saying this, he wants our hearts. Because of who he is, because hero Israel, the Lord, our God, Is in a class by himself. There's no other Almighty being. The most important thing we can do as we're gathered together is to adore him, to tell him that we love him. The reason that the, the gut meaning of gathering together needs to be to worship him, which what that means is that we our hearts, we get rid of some of the extraneous things, and we talk to God and say, God, we love you. We adore you. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. We respond to your voice. And Moses says that out of that intimate, vertical relationship becomes right living, moral, ethical living on the horizontal relationship. He's saying that as we learn to worship and adore and to praise and to let God be the exclusive commander of our life, that we learn to obey in everyday life. And so he brings his message to a close, and the next verses talk about the cities of refuge that Moses set up in Transjordan. The chapter closes by a reminder of the great military victories that God gave to Moses over the Moabite king, over Sion and over Og. And then he says we're going to move in chapter 5 into the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at what I think is the ethical foundation of all of our culture, It needs to be the ethical foundation of our life. It's a group of commands that used to be on all the walls of our churches and our schools and our government, and it needs to be put back there because it is the ethical foundation of life. And I want you to see this combination. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, establishes free and total forgiveness on this vertical level with God. And so we become the people that can know him. We become the people that enjoy relationship with him. But unless it changes how we live morally on the ethical level, then both the Old and New Testaments question the reality of this vertical relationship. And evangelical Christianity in America today, we're, we've said this for the last few weeks in our teaching, the book of Deuteronomy, evangelical Christianity is very much in danger of talking about a vertical relationship that has very little practical impact in a moral, ethical way. The message of Moses finishes this sermon to the people is, you can't divorce the two. Come and adore him, you'll treat your neighbor right. Come and worship him, you won't cheat your employer. Come and worship him, you will not be a moral sexual. Come and worship him, and you won't steal. Come and worship him. You'll have no other gods before him. You won't be materialistic in worshiping things. You'll be able to enjoy things, receiving them as a gift, but never living for them.